0: Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to find out more information about our show, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to talk wine with you today. How are you, Kim? I'm doing well, Mark. How are you? Great, and I'm excited to talk about these topics we chose today. The first one is from Dan Berger's blog, PressDemocrat.com, And what does it mean if a dry wine tastes sweet? And we talk about this a lot, Kim, as far as detection of a sweet versus a dry wine. And you always have, and I say this all the time, but you always have, the I think, the perfect explanation for dry versus sweet in wine.
1: Which explanation is that? Wet, like your wet statement. Ones. Oh, <laughs> Right, that wine terms, we might all be speaking English, but when it comes to ordinary words that we use all the time, they might have a slightly different meaning when it comes to applying them to wine. And I, I like to tell people that in wine terms, dry is not the opposite of wet, dry is the opposite of sweet. But the term sweet, when it comes to wine, can be a little bit tricky to wrap your brain around. Because in the technical sense, dry means that there is no detectable sugar in a wine, but people can perceive sweetness in a wine even without there being sugar there because of all those wonderful flavors that we experience.
0: And I think there's two key things to always remember. The sugars in the grapes, once it ferments, it's either fermented out to dryness or if there's some residual sugar left in there. And everybody's perception of detecting sugar levels is totally different. And I think that's one of the hardest things when someone tells us that a wine is sweet and we don't think it's sweet. It's it's how do we communicate? That that it's truly not a sweet wine, right? And it's it's all your style. Your it's own... your
1: style. It's what you like. It's what you can detect. And there are other things that come into play. The, one of the biggest ones being acid levels, which we'll we'll talk about in just a second. But for me, I often try to explain it to people that whereas you might be drinking a wine that doesn't have any noticeable sugar left in there, your palate might still be telling your brain that this is sweet because you're detecting fruity flavors and in the in the real world when we eat fruit, we never eat fruit that doesn't have any sugar to it. Fruit is just generally a, a sweet food stuff, even if we don't necessarily think, oh, you know, this apple is super duper sweet. There's always sugar in there. And your brain is um, sort of conditioned to know that, hey, the flavor of apple goes hand in hand with sweetness. So when you taste that same flavor in a wine, your brain then says, hey, hey, sweet, even if it isn't really in the presence of any sugar. So I think that that for a lot of people, when when you just either start tasting wine or when you're trying to talk about what a wine tastes like. I think that can be very, very difficult. So we try to get across to people that flavor can be a different thing than sweetness.
0: And in this article, Kim, Dan was talking about German wines and sweetness, which is probably the most difficult thing for a wine consumer to understand because it is it is very strange how they do sweetness levels. When they harvest grapes in Germany, they must tell the government what sweetness level they are going to label that wine at when they harvest it. So that's very unusual. Usually it's after it's fermented, you put a, a level on there. And I think recently they're going to change that law. Are they, are they not kidding? Was that something because it was just so, it seemed to be so strange that they had to tell a level before it was made and they wanted some leeway. So a lot of times you could get a German wine, it would it would be labeled at a certain sweetness, but it was below that sweetness because of the range in the beginning. Right. It it's a
1: completely different system than anybody else in the world labels their wines, although Austria does something similar. But it's really sort of this bizarre system where all of the important information on the wine label, aside from what's the grape variety and where did it come from, is all based on how sweet were those grapes when they were picked. It's so out there and it's so very different from France and Spain and the U.S. and anywhere else in South America. So it's, yeah, it's it's a difficult, it's kind of a difficult
0: system. Yeah, Germany's tough. Uh, just reading the label and uh, understanding how they label the sweetness is, is, is very tough. But there has been a new thing on a lot of wines lately where they put on the back of the label a sweetness scale. And we talked about this recently, Kim, where we find that very helpful. And it's basically sweet to dry and it, it'll put a little, little mock where it says the wine is so you could just simply turn the label over and look at the it's basically an indication of the sugar level right in the wine
1: and I, I do find that that is very helpful for consumers because even if their chart or their scale that they're using doesn't necessarily match up to a, another producer's scale your consumer is still getting I think useful information on that back label that can kind of point them in the direction of oh okay I understand that this is a dry wine a semi-sweet wine a really sweet wine just to give them a little bit of kind of what are, what are you in for when you're buying this wine one thing that does impact how sweet a wine tastes though and i mentioned this about a minute ago is the level of acidity in the wine and this is really really important when it comes to those german wines as well so they um when a wine hat a wine naturally needs acidity in it but acids sour flavored things and sugars are natural opposites and when you have a wine that has a lot of sugar to it but it also has higher acid it's not going going to taste as sweet than if that acid wasn't actually there.
0: Yeah. And they also mentioned a pH level affects the sweetness. And the pH is basically acidity, measurement of acidity. Mm -hmm. So basically the same thing as what you were saying for for acidic levels. Um, We're talking very geeky, right? So (laughs) One of the things we talked, try to talk basic of this, I, I think, is look at the alcohol level of the wines too. And I use this as an example a lot for Riesling. If you have two Rieslings and you can't figure out which one you think is sweet, which one you think is drier, look at the alcohol compare the two technically the higher alcohol one should technically be drier or less sweet than the lower alcohol wine and i find people find that useful and it's not really a geeky thing it's just a basic fermentation thing yeah
1: that's a rule of thumb that i tell people all the time it can get a little tricky when you're in like 11 to 12 percent range because there is always an over under that winemakers and when they put the label on the wine that they they have a little bit of of maneuverability there as far as does this really hit it on the mark exactly where the alcohol level is. But you can have a wine at 11% that has a little bit of sweetness, or you can have a wine at 11% that might be completely dry. So that's the level where I tell people that this could be one way or the other. But if you see a wine that is 9% and it's a Riesling, you're you're pretty much assured that there is going to be some sweetness in that wine.
0: And that goes for any, I think, varietal as well, the higher alcohol. Right, true. Alcohol. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, you know, tip.
1: something like Moscato as well. You know, if you see a lower alcohol level on a bottle of, say, Moscato, chances are you're going to get something a little bit sweet in there too. So
0: Kim, what do you think is the best way our listeners can learn to train their palate for wine sweetness? I mean, besides tasting, 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 mm. how would you say build up your sweet?
1: Build it up, like, like learn how would to you appreciate learn it or learn to like sweet.
0: it? You know, because a lot of people, for instance, I get a lot of people that say they like, I'm looking for a sweet white. And then you'll ask them, okay, are you drinking Riesling? Are you drinking Moscato? Because I feel there's a difference in sweetness. So I try to find out what they've been drinking and would you then take them a higher sweetness level or a lower sweetness level? I, it's, it's
1: tricky, It's right? tricky, it's tricky. I, I would actually tell people, People to become a little bit more aware of the terminology that could be used on a bottle that would indicate to you, does this have some sweetness to it? And there are some tricky terms. So like if you turn over a bottle and you see a description on the back of it and it is saying that it is fruity, so oftentimes fruity in a description like that might be leading you in the direction of, oh, this might have some sweetness to it. Something like the term off dry is a, a tip off that that does have some sweetness to it. So I would say make yourself aware of what are those you know kind of kind of call them code words for um, a wine that might have some sweetness to it. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about myself at my website, vinitaswineworks.com, and you can find out more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com. Questions we often get asked by students in our classes is if you have a wine cellar or you have wine at home, what's the proper way to store it? And we've always been told in when we take classes and when, when we do our continuing ed that the proper way to store a bottle of wine that has a cork in it is to store it on its side. And there are all different reasons why people say you're supposed to store a bottle on its side. But the most prominent one is that you're supposed to keep the cork damp so that it doesn't dry out. And we ran across an article in Drinks Business that is debunking the idea that you need to store wine on its side. This was pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah, it was mind-blowing, actually. And and they, they called it kind of bull, and we won't say the, the word they used. <laughs> but it, it had me thinking, a lot of it, to me, made sense. And, and not just keeping wine on its side, but when you store wine by the case, a lot of times you'll see them flipped upside down. And like you said, Kim, the basis to keep the cork wet. And I always felt not only for preserving the wine, but to get the cork out, it was better to keep the cork wet. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things they mentioned here went totally opposite of all of that.
1: Yeah. This article is very interesting because it made me sit back and rethink, okay, this is the reasoning behind why everyone has always said that needs to be stored on its side. Let's think about all of those reasons and really give them the benefit of the doubt and be like, okay, do we really need to do that? And this came about from research done like 10 years ago. So this has been out there, but this is the first time that I've run across this bit of research. And one of the things that they did mention, so we're talking all about humidity and the humidity of keeping the cork like you said slightly damp and you know we're always told that a wine cellar space itself should also have high humidity so that the cork doesn't dry out and then I'm thinking well everything has a capsule over it so how is the humidity from the cellar getting through the capsule into the cork as well so this really gave me some some head scratching I have to admit
0: yeah and, and they were saying even with high humidity it does not dry out the cork I don't know I, th- I thought that's one of the basic things we learn is you have to have humid conditions you have to put it on its side, and they totally debunked the whole things. But they did say, and, and they stressed, that it is good moist conditions and humid conditions will help prevent evaporation of the wine. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was important.
1: And, the, and they don't go as far as to saying that humidity is not a factor. Humidity is a factor, but what this uh, research is coming up with is that where the humidity is is what makes the difference. And they're saying that in that tiny little space between where the wine is and where the cork is inside the bottle. That's what counts. So it's the humidity in that is called the headspace of the bottle. So it's not about the cellar. It's not about keeping the wine in contact with the cork. It is what's going on in that atmosphere inside the bottle. And then there was also some research that was a part of this about cork taint. I know we talk about cork taint a lot. And it's one of the reasons why producers have moved to alternative closures such as screw caps or plastic corks or glass enclosures. And they're saying that it's a Different type of exposure that produces a corked wine, and that sometimes you'll even get a corky bottle from a wine that doesn't have cork in it. So a lot of it has to do more with its exposure in the cellar and less having to do with with what is the closure of the wine. So all sorts of stuff came out of this uh, this research.
0: Yeah, the other thing too, Kim, is they talked about. We always say put it on the side to keep that cork wet, but they say the wet cork actually breaks down when a cork is wet, and right. I never would have thought of that. No,
1: I wouldn't either. To me, it seems
0: like the dry cork, you know, falls apart, but they're saying a wet cork weakens the cell structure of the wood in the cork. So I thought that was pretty mind blowing.
1: And I I have to say, when I've had corks that have fallen apart on me, when I've tried to open the bottle, they've kind of been of all of all types. Some of them are very dry. Some of them are very damp. So whether it has to do with how much exposure to the liquid the cork got or not, I'm not sure how much of that ends up destroying. Destroying cork when you're trying to pull it out.
0: I was just going to ask you that because I'm sure our listeners probably had the same issue, but you store them on the side, you think it's proper, and then you, you pull the cork out and it's totally dry and mm-hmm. it breaks apart. Uh, so annoying. Yeah. Uh, so you, I guess if your cork is then seeping through or, or it is wet to almost, it's a bad condition. Right, where you've got leakage there you, instead. Yeah, yeah. We think it's good to get the cork out, but in, in turn it's bad for, for the wine itself. So also in the article, Kim, did you see there was a lot of feedback of people who were saying they do store their wine upright and they still had issues with the core right and that so. was
1: yeah And interesting. I think that that is what led to this conversation about even if the wine isn't necessarily in contact with the cork, you still could get a corked bottle. And that it more has to do with the chemical changes that are just in that environment and not so much the the one to one contact between the cork and the wine. So it's almost like there's this mini environment. They described it as like very, it's it's like almost a mini, mini barrel just happening in your wine bottle between the cork, which is wood. and then and then the beverage and everything kind of going on in that minuscule environment in the bottle.
0: The drinkbusiness.com is a UK publication and the story was a Portuguese story. Of course. Portugal <laughs> of course. Is the king of corks, right? But I was thinking like when you look at all the port houses in Portugal, how do they store all their port wine, all their vintage mm-hmm. port? In the cellars, it's all laying down on it its is side, laying down. right? So why don't they believe this? Well, if they're in Portugal, they're using Portuguese cork.
1: Well, like I said, you know, this research is not new research. This was from a number of years ago, but it only seems to be getting out there in the world now. So change does happen pretty slowly in a lot of industries and especially in ours, where there is a lot of tradition. There's a lot of things that maybe people don't want to change about the way that things are done. Done in wine, so I can see there being some some pushback about changing something that we've been told for years and years and years and years is the way that you're supposed to do it, and then suddenly to have this research come along and say no, you were wrong all along.
0: That's tough to take. You think oh, I have two kind of follow up finish questions on this, campus. First off, would you now change how you're storing wine, and second, do you think this will lead to different? St- types of shelving or refrigeration units Hmm. that are standing up versions?
1: I don't know. Maybe if this information gets out there, I think it was one study. So more studies need to be done. And if it's one study done by a cork producing country coming out and saying, hey, it's not the cork's fault, more research needs to be done to see if this actually is a thing or if this is uh, not a thing. So (laughs) I would say uh, stay tuned and we will see what other things hit our radar as as far as how you store your bottles.
0: You are listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at VinitasWineWorks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to FranklinLiquors.com. Now we're going to talk about an article that was in Wine Enthusiast Magazine, and they stated, Most wines we drink are blends. And Kim, I think for us being in the wine industry, I mean, this is common knowledge. Most of the famous famous wines in the world, uh, Bordeaux's, Rhone's, are blended wine. So this was like, yeah, so, but, you know, what are we going to talk about in blends?
1: Well, I think that this is good, um, you know, good wine 101 basics of wine. You know, it's nice to re- revisit these um, these topics every once in a while. And it, it's actually very helpful, I find, for me to see these things pop up in a publication like Wine Enthusiast, which is a little bit more geared to our, towards the novice wine drinker. So they do put a lot out there about sort of the basics of wine. So So I still find with a lot of people um, that even though red blends, quote unquote, is a very, very popular category, that there is still a little bit of misinformation out there about the quality of a blend. And there there does seem to still be this idea for people that if it is a blend of a number of different grapes, so say you've got some Cabernet and some Merlot and some Syrah and maybe a couple of other grape varieties in there, that that somehow means that it's an inferior wine as as opposed to a one 100% say Cabernet Sauvignon and that really isn't the case like Mark just said so many of our classic styles are more traditional wines especially the ones that came from France and came from Italy are blends and that there are traditional reasons why this was done historical reasons why this was done a lot of it had to do with the farmers hedging their bets with the climate and and the weather for that particular year and it has just come down to us that blended wines tend to be uh, way more what is in the bottle than, than people have any idea about.
0: When we do education classes we always talk about in the United States Kim the 75% rule. Mm-hmm. So I was if hoping you're, you'd bring this up. If your wine says it's Cabernet it only has to be 75% Cabernet in that bottle. So technically you probably have a very good chance that every wine you're picking up is some sort of blend. And even if a wine is 95% Cab they might put 5% of something else to give it structure to give it color or to give it more acidity would give it more tannins. So there's always blending going on behind the scenes that we don't know. And we always stress that it's very important that you do find out that percentage so you can identify what you like when you're drinking. If you like Cabernet, do you like 100% Cabernet? Do you like blended Cabernet?
1: But I also find that it's important for people to understand that the reasons why it might be blended is because sometimes when you have a wine that has a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, your final product is more than the sum of its parts because you might have... a grape variety that has high tannins, but not a lot of fruit. And then you might have another one that has better acidity. So you have all these little almost like ingredients for a recipe and the winemaker puts them all together and comes up with something better, something spectacular than if that was just a 100% Grenache or a 100% Syrah. Blend the two together and you have something really special. So I try to get that across to people that there's nothing inferior necessarily about a blend versus a 100% varietal wine.
0: And you can see we always talk about labeling you can see where if you turn a bottle over they can say it's blended and bottled by themselves so you -hmm. you know something's being mixed or blended together so if it says it's one varietal they can still say it's blended on the back and if it is a red blend and they can list the grapes on the back and they must list them in descending order um, up until like five percent of use of the grape so that is some information but many times they don't tell you what's in the blend and i wanted to talk quick kim about when you you do your French class, I love how you explain in Bordeaux why they blend. It has a lot to do with the agricultural co- uh, products. If they're growing Cabernet Merlot, one ripens different than the other. One year, one might grow better than the other. So they change that blend all the time.
1: Right, right. And, you know, when you think about, especially before more modern wine and grape growing techniques, you might have one grape that flowers and, and sets its fruit at a different time than another one, and you might get a hailstorm that destroys Half your crop. If you planted all Cabernet and all that Cabernet got destroyed, you're out of luck for the season. You have no product. But if you do Cabernet and Merlot and a little bit of Malbec, and the Merlot and the Malbec were fine because they only had leaves on their plants when that hailstorm hit and they hadn't set their berries yet, then you still have a crop. So I do like to bring that up to people that this is one of the reasons why this style of grape growing and winemaking uh, began in the first place.
0: Do you think more? worldwide, more winemakers are blending because of what you just said, Kim, because of the cr- the crop, or do you think they're blending more due to cost? So I think
1: cost is an issue too, because there are some grapes that are less expensive to grow. But I think a lot of it too comes down to tradition. Like this is, these are the grapes that we traditionally will blend together to make this kind of wine. It's like you always see Cabernet and Merlot together, and you do see some producers in California that will do some like wild and wacky things and will blend grapes that were originally from this place and then from this place just to experiment and see what they come up with. But I think for those producers that want to continue to do a more traditional style of wine, they're going to stick to what they know. I,
0: I see the, the Europeans, more like you say, more traditional, but I'm also seeing lately more California, especially Napa. Cabernet's production, is the cost is very expensive. So yeah. they seem to be, the people that were producing 100% or 90% cabs are now cutting back to the minimum 70. Oh, that's very interesting. Because of cost. The tonnage yeah. of, of Cabernet grapes in Napa is huge. So they, they'll then source out maybe 25% low-dye grapes, which is less cost to mm-hmm. them. But I, I don't see that happening with the traditional people, like you said, in Europe. The French, they do what they have to yeah, do. Yeah, they're
1: sticking to their their methods and actually, honestly, what's codified in their laws. So in some places, they can't change it. So you can't just start growing Pinot Noir in Bordeaux, and you're going to throw that into your Bordeaux and call it a Bordeaux. Uh-uh. They don't let you do that. So. So at least in places like California, winemakers have um, a lot more freedom to blend how they want to blend, make what they want to make, than in some of these areas that they're sort of stuck by what the laws are telling them that they have to do.
0: Yeah, so bottom line is always do research, find out what percentages in your wine that you're drinking.
1: You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find out more information about Mark on his website, FranklinLiquors.com, and you can find out more about myself at VinitasWineWorks.com. An interesting topic that just came up in a recent class that we did on Italian wine was about wine producers in Italy and how there are very few big brands that you see coming out of Italy as opposed to California, where we're sort of conditioned to buy by the brand for California. And it really isn't that way in Italy. So I thought that this was a really nice jumping off point from that recent class of ours.
0: Yeah. And I like Kim when we do a class and then we find out there's something written about things we're actually talking about, right? (laughs) It's not just us. We don't just
1: work in a vacuum here. So we'll
0: pass it on to you. And you're talking about Italian brands. They say there is no Italian wine brand in the top 20 brands in the wine world. And And you you
1: track these things really closely.
0: I thought that was very, very interesting. When you think about When you think about Italian brands, Kim, what names stick out to you? We talked about this the other day yeah the, the
1: the traditional one that i know is no longer really in the market the way that it used to be but bola. bola i remember you know in the late 80s early to late 90s when i was just learning to drink wine not in the late 80s but in the 90s and i remember bola being like the italian brand i also think about martini and rossi santa margarina pinot grigio there's a handful but yet there's not like a big brand like you know the mondavis or the woodbridges or the behringers of the
0: world yeah so when I, if I had asked you that for an American brand, you could I could, could like rattle off, right? off 12 but it, or so. <laughs> so it makes sense, this article, that there really isn't any real standouts. So they were saying it's more of a family brand than a corporate brand. And there are a lot of corporations like the Santa Margaritas that go around Italy, go into these little family wineries, buying their vineyards and just adding it to their portfolio. But it's kind of all behind the scenes. And we really don't... Every once in a while, you'll see a press release saying someone bought so-and-so, or this is part of their portfolio, but they don't really market it.
1: No. They don't market it as the brands, and yet Italian wines are still some of the top vo- you know, of volume wine sold in the U.S. Is it number one? Number is it, one is export it number one?
0: is to the U.S. from to, from Italy.
1: So it's not that they're not having marketing success in the U.S. People are drinking plenty of Italian wines. It's just a different philosophy. You know, we don't necessarily buy by the brand. And what was fascinating to me about this article was that they're saying, okay, so the, the brand on the bottle is not necessarily what. What's important what is in brand what is the brand for italy is the region that it comes from it's the doc it's the docg it's the place which this is very similar to what it is in france but i think it's almost more so in italy because there's this i think personality associated with with each of these docs in italy
0: yeah and that's exactly what i was thinking where i was going it's more i want a prosecco i don't you know what brand don't matter i I want a chianti Chianti, i like
1: amarone you know when people talk about Italian wines, they tend to talk about the, the type of wine that it is, the name of it, the style of it, and and those usually do refer back to the place that they came from.
0: And you know what? It's probably better for Italy that people relate more to the region than the corporation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that this is a, a different way of looking at it, and it's not better, it's not worse, it's a little bit more unique, but it, it is it is more old world, so this is what you see from European winemakers because they have such a long history of making wines in these places. And I say this all the time when we do French wine education, that the place is where it's at. So the wines are named after the places that they come from. And and overall, Italian wines tend to follow that same sort of method where the place is what's important. So that's why prominent names on a wine label are probably going to be the place that that wine came from. So like we said, Chianti and Prosecco and Orvieto, you know, those are places and those wines that come from those places are unique and that is what
0: customers recognize so do you think because we are wine geeks that we like that point versus in America like if you say barefoot you're not really associating that with California you're associating that with the brand right is I, that a geeky thing I, I, that we like uh, this um, point probably about the inter-
1: probably um, I try to always step back a little bit and think about it from the consumer standpoint where to, to the consumer I think the thing that is the most important is how does it taste in my glass so we might think of Okay, the place and the terroir and where, you know, where this is from might be the most important thing. But for the consumer, it generally isn't. It's how does this taste in the glass? And then they make those assumptions and those jumps from how does this taste? Do I like how it tastes? And then therefore, I'm going to associate this taste with what the bottle is telling me, whether the bottle is telling me it's a particular grape variety, or that this is the style from this particular place, or is this the style from this particular product. Producer. So I try to use the jumping off point of how good is this? And then consumers will then take information from the bottle and, and apply that to how good the wine is.
0: And based on what you just said, Kim, it probably all works in the favor of the Italians because they're just hoping you like, you like Prosecco. Great, right? right? You like the region. It's a style and they're not really marketing it. They don't have to market it as right. much as these other
1: And we brands. saw this in our Italian class where we had four wines out that were all from different parts of Italy and people came into the class with a little bit of a preconceived idea of what they liked. And we had one person who saw what was on the the tasting, the tasting list. And she goes, oh, Chianti, I love Chianti. It's, okay, she's already associated one of her likes with that wine. Is that a producer she's ever seen before? Most likely not. But she has a positive association with Chianti. She's had that, a wine from that region before. She might not even know it's a region. She might think it's a grape variety. At that point, it kind of doesn't matter because she has a positive association with the word Chianti and she's excited to try that new glass. Different producer could have different grape blended percentages in there but she's excited to try it. Same thing with the Prosecco that we serve. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Check out previous podcasts. Leave us your comments, and we look forward to speaking with you again next week. Cheers.